Well, one of the most well-known figures of the 20th century was Martin Luther King Jr., the American Baptist minister who campaigned tirelessly for equal rights in the U.S. And he was a very gifted speaker, and of course he would often quote from the Bible, perhaps most famously in his I Have a Dream speech, where he quoted from the book of Amos, saying, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That question of justice is a question that resonates with people all over the world, in every nation and in every generation. What about justice? And we don't need to look very far to see those calls for justice in our own society. Movements such as hashtag MeToo or Black Lives Matter calling for justice for women or justice for people of color. And we see in the news as well brought to our attention the injustice of society in so many ways. Economic injustice, companies making huge profits but denying basic rights to their workers. There's political injustice, countries who are run by dictators and corrupt officials who are taking money, stealing money from their very own people. Or military injustice, one nation goes to war against another nation in order to take their land. All around our world, we see injustice. And the cry goes up that these people who are behind these things need to be called to account. You see, these conflicts are not just nebulous disagreements. So often it's powerful rulers who use their power in a way which is selfish and cruel in order to achieve their own ends. And the world cries that these people must be called to account for the things that they've done. And together with that is the question, well, what is God doing about it all? If there is a God who is loving, and if this God is powerful, then why doesn't God do something about all of the injustice in this world? And that is a question that Christians as well find themselves asking from time to time. Every year, thousands of Christians are martyred for their faith. Every year, millions of Christians across the world suffer for standing for the name of Jesus. If God really loves his people, then surely he should do something about all of this. Well, the good news of the gospel is that God is a loving God and that God is a powerful God, but he's also a God of justice and he has set a day in the future when he will overcome evil and call powerful rulers to an account for the way that they have lived. And in the meantime, he's giving people an opportunity to repent. And the book of Daniel which you've been studying here over the last few weeks, takes us to the heart of many of these questions. You see, you'll know if you've been coming for the last few weeks that the background to the book is that God's people are in bondage, in bondage to Babylon. Babylon was an evil nation, the superpower of the day, and they had attacked Jerusalem. They'd destroyed the temple. They'd murdered thousands of people and many others they'd taken into captivity in Babylon. But even though God's people had been unfaithful, God was faithful. And he promised through his prophets that after 70 years, he would call Babylon to account. And that he would come to the rescue of his people. 
So as we look at Daniel chapter 5, yes, on, on one hand, it's the story of an individual, proud Belshazzar, who meets his comeuppance. It's a reminder that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But on the other hand, this is very much a story of hope, that God is a God who comes good on his promises in the end, and who will overcome evil, and who will bring justice. And that message would have been a huge encouragement to the original readers. See, remember, the original readers were most likely Jews who had already returned to the land in order to rebuild the temple. But what they discovered is that when they returned, there were still many hardships. They still faced opposition from proud rulers and powerful nations. And they needed to look back in history and remember that God is a God who keeps his promises, who overcomes evil, and brings justice in the end for his people. And the same is true for us today. If we're a Christian, then we've given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, and and all of our sins are, are washed away because we're trusting in what Jesus has done at the cross. But that doesn't make life easy. Instead, all around us, we find that we're in conflict with the world, and that can be very discouraging. And in those moments of discouragement, we, like those original readers, need to look back to bits of scripture like Daniel 5 and remember that God is a God who keeps his promises and who is powerful and will overcome evil and come to the rescue of his people. Now, we're going to divide the time up into three sections. We have three points, uh, a proud king, a sovereign God, and a judgment day. So firstly, a proud king. Look with me at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, we might ask ourselves, who is this Belshazzar? In the first four chapters, we learnt about King Nebuchadnezzar. And now, suddenly, he's just disappeared. And there's a new king on the throne, and he hasn't really been introduced very much. But that's part of the point of the book of Daniel, which is that nations rise and nations fall, and kings come and, and kings go. And now there is a new king on the throne, But this king actually isn't even really king at all. Instead, he's the prince. And if we look at the history books, the history books tell us that there had been four different kings in 13 years. And the real king was Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the king of the Babylonian Empire. He was Belshazzar's dad. But dad was all fighting military battles. And so he had left his son, the crown prince, in charge of Babylon. But the sun was setting on the Babylonian Empire. There was a new superpower on the block, and that superpower was the Persians, spurred on by their hugely ambitious leader, Cyrus the Great. Now, Cyrus had had military victories in the north, in Turkey, and now he turned his attention south to his old enemy, the Babylonians. And just a few days prior to these scenes described here in chapter 5, there'd been a key military victory of the Persians over the Babylonians. And after this, they'd surged forward and surrounded the whole of Babylon. The Persians were on their doorstep. Babylon was surrounded. But Babylon was famously well fortified. According to the history books, it had three massive sets of walls and was also protected by the Euphrates River, which ran through it and gave it drinking water as well. It was widely regarded as being almost impregnable. And so instead of spending the night strategizing, Belshazzar decided that he would throw a a lavish party. 
uh, we find out from, from the history books that this was a regular annual feast which was put on, perhaps a, a little bit like Christmas. So you could say that Belshazzar was like the boss who realizes that the company is about to go bust, but still decides to throw an extravagant Christmas party to try and prop up morale and in order to show off. And so we can picture him opening bottle after bottle of the most expensive champagne. And just to take things up one, one more notch, he decides to bring out the very best silverware. So look with me at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So we see the kind of party that this is, wine, woman, and song. And it mentions here that Nebuchadnezzar is his father, not his literal father, but rather a father figure to the nation. And Nebuchadnezzar was the one who had attacked Jerusalem and taken these artifacts from the temple. But Nebuchadnezzar had had a really serious run-in with the God of Jerusalem, and everybody knew all about that. And if you were here last week, you would remember the story that Nebuchadnezzar had failed to acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God, and so God had humbled him. He'd become like an animal, and it was only when he repented, <coughs> it was only that <coughs> when he repented that God restored his sanity. And after that, he sent a message far and wide into all of his empire explaining this amazing testimony. And again, if you were here last week, you will, you will remember that story. That even though Nebuchadnezzar was the worst of the worst, that God accepted him and forgave him. And it's a reminder to us that anyone, if they turn to the Lord, can be forgiven. Now, everyone knew this story in Babylon, including Belshazzar. So there certainly would have been some eyebrows raised when he called for those goblets of the God who'd humbled the greatest Babylonian king in history and decided to drink from them. But not only did he drink from them, as they drank, they committed idolatry. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze iron, wood, and stone. It's as though he was holding his fist up to God and saying to everybody else there, look what kind of man I am. I'm even willing to take on the God of the Jews who humbled Nebuchadnezzar. It was the epitome of pride and rebellion. Uh, the Bible tells us that this is really what the essence of sin is. Sin is holding up our fists against God and saying, God, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to make my own rules. And it's because of sin, that pride and rebellion, that there's so much injustice in this world. When we look around at the heartache and injustice of this world, we might be tempted to think that it's just a horizontal problem, people falling out with other people. But the Bible shows us that it's firstly a vertical problem, that it's because we've rejected God and his ways that that leads to all of the issues around us. You see, God is a loving creator God, and he knows exactly what's best for this world and what's best for each and every one of us. But when we reject his blueprint, well, as a result, 
society ends up in chaos. And that's exactly what we saw back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rejected God. Sin crept in and the world started to spin out of control. And that's exactly what we see around us as people in positions of authority, rulers and influential people reject God's pattern for this world. For that leads to all of the injustice in the world around us. For that's the pattern for many in positions of leadership. But the Bible tells us that it's also true for each and every one of us individually. That we're all guilty at some level of holding our fist up against God and saying, I'm going to do it my way. And all of us need to repent. And God is a loving God who will always forgive those who repent. But if we refuse to repent, then we find ourselves in conflict with God. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar is a, a proud ruler, but he's also representative of every person in his sin. And because he refuses to repent, he comes into conflict with a sovereign God. And that's our second point, a sovereign God. Look with me at verse 5 and 6. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Well, Belshazzar is drinking with his military rulers and his generals when he sees something that he's not ex expecting. He sees a hand appear and write on the plaster of the wall and the blood drains from his face and his knees begin to knock together. In fact, the text is a little unclear and some commentators think that it's not his knees that are loosened but rather that his bowels which are loosened. Well, it definitely has a profound effect on him and we can imagine that he faints and falls over. People run towards him and, and somebody says, get a glass of water. Eventually, he's propped up in a chair, looking rather disheveled and worse for wear. But there for all to see is the writing on the wall. But nobody can read it. And so next up, I'll call in all of the magicians and enchanters, the wise men of Babylon. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, then you'll know that in some, some ways, these characters are like the, the comic relief, the laughing stock. That's because they take themselves exceptionally seriously, but are utterly useless, incompetent, and actually deciphering the future. And that is a recurring theme in the book of Daniel, because God is the one who knows the future. And so in come all of these magicians and wise men with their funny hats and their scrolls and their magic wands in order to make some attempts at reading the writing on the wall. And Belshazzar is looking very much the worse for wear. And so in order to try and regain some dignity, he launches into a long speech about who, how whoever can read the writing on the wall will be very handsomely rewarded and will be made third in the kingdom. And that's because his father, Nabonidus, is first, and he is second. And he says that this individual will be third if only they can read the writing on the wall. Well, the various enchanters and magicians come forward, but nobody can read it. And amidst all of the hubbub, and as news spreads over throughout the palace, eventually Grandma is woken up and comes to see what is going on. Now, it says over here in the verses, the queen. But if you have a look at the footnote, it says, or queen mother, which is 
probably more likely. And that means, because he was the crown prince, that this is Belshazzar's grandma. That's the reason why she hasn't been invited to the party with the drinking boys and the dancing girls. So when grandma comes, and we can imagine, she's been woken up in the middle of the night, still wearing her pajamas, and she comes in and she says, uh, seeing him rather the worse for wear, and nobody able to help, she says, don't worry, Belshazzar, cheer up. I know a man who's able to help. And so word goes out for Daniel. Daniel, it seems at this stage, has fallen rather out of favor. But eventually he's brought in before Belshazzar. And it's obvious from the way that they interact that there's no love lost between them. Belshazzar is condescending. Oh, you're Daniel. Daniel from Jerusalem, you say? Funny that. We were just talking about Jerusalem. That's where we got these goblets from. Well, there's this writing on the wall. Nobody has been able to read it so far. But if you can read it, then you'll be very handsomely rewarded. Belshazzar is condescending. And Daniel, in response, is clipped. There's none of the warmth that he had for Nebuchadnezzar in the previous chapter. And he says to him very directly, King, you can keep your reward. Because you knew all about what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, and you did nothing about it. Look with me at verse 21. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. He says, you knew. You knew all about what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, how God put him in a high place and how God humbled him. But you haven't acknowledged the evidence at all. And you see what these verses say about how the world works, which is that God is sovereignly in charge of this world, and that he is the one who puts people in positions of authority. He puts Nebuchadnezzar as king over the whole of the Babylonian Empire, and he had put Belshazzar as king of the city. He puts people in positions of authority. It is not an accident. But he also calls them to account. And he called Nebuchadnezzar to give an account. And now he was causing, calling Belshazzar to give an account. And Belshazzar was without excuse because the evidence was there and he rejected it. And so he would have to face God's judgment. The same is true today. God is the sovereign God. And people who are in positions of authority or leadership, they do not get there by accident. God is the one who chooses to put people in those positions. The same is true for you and I. If you're in a position of leadership in your company, in your workplace, in your family, then yes, your hard work contributed towards it, but ultimately God is the one who's placed you there. And God is the one who will call people to give an account for the decisions that they've made. And those leaders in this world who've acted selfishly, who've chosen evil, who rejected the evidence that God is there, one day God will call them to account. And one day God will call each of us to give an account 
for the way that we've lived. And the Bible tells us that humanity will be without excuse. Now, we may not have writing on the wall, but God has made himself abundantly clear. For the average man in the street, God is giving evidence upon evidence upon evidence. There's the evidence of Christians, individuals who've had a personal encounter with a living God and who are willing to share that story. There's the evidence of Scripture. As we open the Bible, it points us to the good news of the gospel that Jesus has died and risen. There's the evidence of creation. The Bible tells us that God has shown his character in the stars, his power and his goodness, so that nobody but nobody will be able to have any excuse on the day of final judgment. God is sovereign. God chooses who's in positions of leadership. God will call people to account, and nobody will be with, with, with any excuse. We see here a sovereign God, and so we see also, and finally, a judgment day. Daniel doesn't hold back from giving the interpretation. Look with me at verse 25. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mane, Mane, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, Mane. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Well, it seems like Belshazzar acknowledged that there was truth in what Daniel was saying because he immediately rewarded him. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Well, what we have here is a mini picture of the contrast between believers and unbelievers on the day of final judgment. On that day of judgment, when it comes, those who've faithfully been trusting in the Lord will be rewarded like Daniel. Not on their own merit, but simply through faith. The same is true, the contrast is true, for those who've rejected God, like Belshazzar, judgment comes swift and suddenly for those who've ignored the evidence. And this is a contrast which is given here, a picture of judgment day to come in the future. Well, the singer-songwriter Johnny Cash years ago wrote a song about Belshazzar. I think it's not historically accurate in all of the details, but it captures something of the essence of what happened. The Bible tells us about a man who ruled Babylon and all its land. Abound, around the city, he built a wall and declared that Babylon would never fall. He had concubines and wives. He called his Babylon paradise. Upon his throne he drank and ate, but for Belshazzar it was getting late. For he was weighed in the balance and found wanting. His kingdom was divided, couldn't stand. He was weighed in the balance and found wanting. His houses were built upon the sand. A day of final judgment for Belshazzar. And we're told by the historians what happens. You see, the Persians knew that the Babylonians would be having a great feast day. And they chose that very night in order to, to spring their attack, the night when the Babylonians would be off guard. 
they diverted the Euphrates River, lowered the water level so that soldiers could get into the city. And we're told by the Greek historians Herodotus and Xenophon that Babylon, that seemingly impregnable fortress, fell largely without a fight, just as detailed here in Daniel chapter 5. And Darius the Medes took control of the city. Now, Darius the Mede was either one of Cyrus's generals or just another name for Cyrus himself. And Cyrus was in many ways the liberator of God's people because within a year or two, he had announced that the Jews could return to the land in order to rebuild the temple. The prophet Isaiah saw Cyrus almost as a messianic figure. He describes him as a messianic figure in the book of Isaiah because he fulfilled the prophecy spoken by God's people, and which is spoken in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 12. Don't worry about turning there, but let me read it to you. Jeremiah 25, verse 12. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So God's promise that one day he would judge that king and punish that kingdom, and rescue his people, and take them home, that all came true in the end. So as I said earlier, on one hand, this book is about an individual, and it shows us the danger of pride and rebellion, that if we shake our fists against God, then God will call us to account. And friend, maybe you're here today, and you know that Deep in your heart, you've never bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're still shaking your fist against God. Well, can I implore you to look at the evidence and to come to the Lord and to repent? He will always, always, always forgive those who come to him. The same is true for us if we're Christians. There, there may be ways in which there's pride lurking in our hearts. There may be areas of, of our life where we're still shaking the fist against God and saying, God, you can't have control of this area. We need to repent of those things because one day God will call us to account. But even though this is an example of pride and rebellion and God judging pride, much more than this, this is a story of hope that God is a God who comes good on his promises. Towards the end of World War II, the Allies in Europe celebrated VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And it came after Hitler committed suicide and his generals gave up and said that <clears throat> they had finally been defeated. And as a result, there were street parties all across Europe. People were dancing and singing in the streets. And there's photos of the smiling children at these street parties. And if you went to, to one of those children and you said, what is this all about? They wouldn't say to you, the moral of the story is don't be like Hitler. They would say, Hitler is dead. The Nazis are defeated and we are safe. And so too for the original readers, the meaning of this would have been much more like that. That Belshazzar is dead. That Babylon is defeated. And that God's people are safe. They will never return to Babylon again. They're going home. And that would have been such an encouragement to those Jews who had returned to the land and were still facing opposition. In fact, later on in the book of Daniel, God's people are warned that after they'd returned to the land, things would get worse before they got better. 
they still faced opposition from evil rulers and powerful nations. And they needed to look back in history and remember that God is a God who keeps his promises, that he overcomes evil, and that he rescues his people. The same is true for, for you and I today. But today, the words of Jeremiah have come true, and Babylon is nothing more than a wasteland, a heap of rubble in the deserts in Iraq. But in New Testament times, we're told that the equivalent of Babylon is this world around us. And it's not hard to see the parallels, is it? The ancient city of Babylon was impressive with its towers and its art and commerce and culture. And the world around us is impressive with its towers and art and and culture. London is like that. But just as Babylon in the Old Testament was an evil city full of injustice and impurity, so too the world around us is full of injustice and impurity. And even though we're Christians, if we're trusting in Christ and have received the Holy Spirit and have the Bible and have each other, sometimes we can be very discouraged by the things that we see in this world. And we're tempted to say, Lord, what are you doing in the big picture and in the little picture? And in those moments, we need to remember God is a God who keeps his promises, who will overcome evil and will rescue his people. We can be confident that in God's perfect timing, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Let's pray.